This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Thanks to everyone who tuned in to our season premiere yesterday, Get Your Art Together with Namel Tapwater's Norris. So in 12 or 24 hours, you've gotten your art together, right? That's what everybody went home and, and did. Uh, so now that your art is uh, together, in theory, and you're ripe and ready to record, we want to not only ensure your marketing platforms are in place for when the time or <laughs> when the time comes to release, but you also should be monetizing your music before it's even out. So that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to make, you know, it's like, okay, you're ready to hit the studio, but before you do that, we're going to make sure you have your platforms in place and we're going to talk about mon- monetizing your music before release. Uh, but before we... Be- be- Before we get started, I wanted to share uh, that we're recording this in June, which is New York Music Month. New York Music Month is the official celebration of New York City's vibrant and dynamic music ecosystem that I'm so proud to be a part of. The month is an initiative of the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, and we are so grateful for their partnership in making this season happen. June also means it's Pride Month. So I deeply want to thank our partners over at the Ally Coalition for supporting us and the crucial work that they do every day year-round. Founded in 2013 by Jack and Rachel Antonoff, the Ally Coalition provides critical support for organizations dedicated to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth and raises awareness about the systematic inequalities facing the LGBTQ population. Ally Coalition is committed to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth through tours, social media campaigns, and collaborative partnerships. To learn more and how you can get involved, visit theallycoalition.org. And I've just got one more for you. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Vanzoogle. We want to take this time to congratulate Vanzoogle members for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Vanzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in minutes. 
All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles. Plus, live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the, pro- the promo code SUSTAINABLE, which is all in caps, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code SUSTAINABLE. Okay, so here we go with episode two of season three, pre-recording marketing foundation. So first I wanna share some information on the power of collecting email addresses and collecting mobile phone numbers from your fans. So why are tech companies, uh, you know, the most valuable companies in the world? We don't have a mic in the audience in this moment, so I'm just gonna answer that question. Because they have all of our data right? So you guys are putting your music out on Spotify, you're connecting with fans on social media. I'm not saying don't do that. Um, But all of these, you know, multi-billion dollar, you know, massive companies have your fans' email addresses, often have their mobile phone numbers, more often than not have, uh, more often than not also have their locations, right? There's a reason why you know, Apple and and Spotify and these companies aren't, or, you know, Instagram, right? Like aren't giving you your fans contact information because that's literally um, what they are monetizing. So it's not the most creative or sexiest sounding thing in the world, but as an artist or someone that supports artists, you need to think of yourself as a tech company and really be like an anteater for lack of a better phrase Um, for email addresses and and mobile phone numbers from your fans. And, you know, I'll share an example that, you know, uh, to bring that to life a little bit. Um, So when I was in college, I started working with a band called the Dresden Dolls. And the Dresden Dolls are a keyboard drum duo. They're they're a punk cabaret band. And we were all in Boston, which was, this was the early 2000s, um, which was a very rock scene at the time. So they weren't getting booked at like, normal venues. They were playing, you know, art galleries, lofts, parties, um, stuff like that. And, you know, I don't even think email list software really existed at that time, or if it did, it certainly wasn't common or, you know, talked about it at conferences. So the singer of the band, Amanda Palmer, um, you know, would collect email addresses from the fans and just send out like a BCC'd email. And they were a local band on the rise at the time. And I remember, uh, and and starting to build a little bit of a team. And I remember Amanda saying to me, well, what if you go away? Or what if my booking agent goes away? Or what if my attorney goes away? This is my only pipeline to share our music and our shows uh, directly with, with the audience. So, you know, again, I used to tour manage the band, do merch, all that stuff. And you know, there's two people in the band and you could barely say hi to Amanda, Brian, or myself without us saying, would you like to sign up for the email list? And when I was doing merch and and tour managing, this is a great, you know, kind of icebreaker at the merch table too, when folks are mulling around. 
um, say, would you like to join my, you know, community.com list? Would you like to join my email list, right? Um, you could also offer them like a, a button, you know, badge, sticker um, to help entice folks to sign up. So a few years later, Amanda um, was putting out her first solo album. And with permission, I mean, it's her band. Uh, I went and grabbed the Dresden Dolls email list and all that would you sign up for our email list uh, added up because there were like 50,000 names on it, maybe 40, 50,000 names. And so I'm dating myself by using a sales reference, but, um, you know, Amanda was, was signed to a major label subsidiary and ended up selling 10,000 copies of that record in the first week. A thousand were sold by the record company and 9,000 were sold by the email list and, or through the email list rather. And we also built in, you know, different merch bundles, had price points probably, um, probably the highest price point around that time was around a hundred, certainly had, you know, digital for five or $10. You know, we'll talk about how you want a price point for everyone. Um, but because she had those higher end price points, uh, she easily cleared six figures in a few hours, um, you know, let alone a day, as opposed to the label at that time, um, the thousand they sold were basically on iTunes for $9.99, right? Um, so that album ended up selling 20,000 copies. So half of it was in the first week, which is, you know, to a major label subsidiary is a commercial failure. Uh, so she was dropped and then went on to raise the most money ever for a musician on Kickstarter, over a million dollars. And even though we don't have a mic in the room yet, um, how many backers do you think she had on Kickstarter? <laughs> what was that? 20,000. I know you said 50, but it's 20,000. So she sold 20,000 um, copies of the record, and that was considered a commercial failure by the major label subsidiary. But what we're talking about is how you monetize your fans, right? So that 20,000, those 20,000 fans, when they, you know, had the option to book a house show, right? To have like really creative merch, um, to have a whole bunch of different tiers, that can be a million dollars or that can be 20,000 times at the time, $9.99 on iTunes, right? Um, so all that, that entire Kickstarter campaign was on the back of that email list, which I, you know, I think by then was probably at about a hundred thousand fans. Um, and I'm sure is even higher. Um, you know, the, both Amanda and the band still do a really good job of, you know, a personal note, um, from their mailer. So, you know, I've said over the years that your email list is your retirement plan, um, I feel the same way about text platforms, and I'm super excited to learn and, and share more about community.com today. Um, but social media algorithms come and go. Social media platforms come and go. You know, like think of all the artists that built their careers on MySpace. In fact, I'm old enough that when I was in college, there was a platform called Friendster. Okay, so it does, you know, seem like, oh, Instagram's going to be here forever. But you guys know, um, you know, you are... Um, beholden, you know, to these algorithms and different trends. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this in a minute, but use your social media to drive track traffic to your text list, to your email list, right? So when someone's like, hey, when are you coming to Cleveland? Or when's the album coming out? You can be like, here's my community list. Like, here's my email list. Like, sign up here and I'll let you know. So again, you just want to be collecting 
as, as, much of, uh, as much of that data as possible in the form of email addresses and, um, and, and mobile phone numbers. So I only share platforms and endorse companies that I genuinely believe in. Um, so for email lists, um, I really like MailChimp because it's free um, for the first 500 email addresses. And I can't code and I can make a MailChimp mailer, you know, so it's, it's pretty easy to use. Um, and then I'm, again, we'll have Erica on in a few, um, who's the head of music at community.com, which has become the music industry standard for direct-to-fan texting, uh, which is exactly um, what we're talking about. And I'm, I'm sure they're, they've expanded, I'm sure they're in, uh, you know, other fields besides music as well, because direct-to-consumer is, is just so crucial. So most of you know this, but um, again, before you hit the studio, if you have a new group, moniker, band name, whatever, grab those social media handles as well, because when it's time to release your music, you don't want to be scrambling to put your Instagram and, um, you know, whichever social media platforms uh, call you. But we'll, we'll do a, a bigger social media dive in uh, episode seven, which is how to market with or without a budget. But now is the time to get that in place. But most of you know that. And, you know, when you have your social media platforms uh, set up, even before you hit the studio, like start teasing out some content, you know? I mentioned this yesterday, but I was, um, you know, just on the panel or whatever for the Clive Davis Institute's uh, graduating seniors at New York University. And, you know, one of them was saying, oh, you know, I, I've got music coming out, but I'll worry about my Instagram later. And I was like, no, like start, start getting it going so, so folks know thing, things are coming, you know? So um, start engaging on, on your socials before you start recording. And monetize your music before it's even out. Um, so if you have a clear vision for your release, like you know you're making an opera, an album, a single, whatever, uh, launch a pre-order for that release. So, um, you know, we recorded season two of this podcast in January. And when I was doing that, I received an email um, from Noel Gallagher's email list. He's the main songwriter in the band Oasis, who's like my favorite. It's not modern anymore. Really, my favorite artist is the Beatles. But um, so in January, I got an email with their pre-order for his album that's actually out today, and we're recording this in June. And so it was the same concept. You could buy the digital up to like 100, I mean, there was, you know, price points in between, which we'll talk about, up to like $150 for like really cool vinyl, concert tickets bundled in. And yeah, the guy that wrote Wonderwall doesn't need the money, but clearly has a really smart team where I can only imagine how much money they have brought in over the past six months before this album even came out today, right? So I also saw, um, I mean, there's tons of artists doing this, but, you know, I also saw Fallout Boy do the same thing, like make an album announcement. Okay, here's all the bundles and, and price points, right? So don't just limit yourself to streaming and streaming is important. And we'll talk more about that in uh, episode six, the distribution episode, but um yeah, like we want you making dollars, tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. And like I said, monetizing your music before it's even out. And I actually, you know, took my own advice uh, with the book this podcast is based on. 
I launched a pre-order for it when I was halfway done writing it because I was like, okay, I'll definitely finish it. And I shared the forward of either the forward or the introduction of the book. So people kind of knew what it was about. And I recouped all my, you know, editing, printing, printing expenses before the book even came out. Right. So keep that in mind uh, for your music instead of just like, okay, it's out on streaming. Right. And you're just getting fractions of a penny like the day the day it comes out. So pre-order, pre-order, pre-order. You can do that from, you know, a Squarespace website. You can do that from Bandcamp. I mean, your web, and again, I don't code. My company's website is on Squarespace. I sell books. I know how to do, you know, if I can figure it out, you all can figure it out. Um, But your own website is where you're going to have the highest uh, profit margins and also collect um, the most data. And also Banzoogle, you know, who I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, they're, they, like, you can build a custom web- website with Banzoogle and they're literally called Banzoogle, right? So they're made for um, musicians. So that's like the number one place to do your pre-order. If that, I mean, Banzoogle honestly isn't hard, but like if that is hard, um, you could also do it on Bandcamp. I actually would recommend doing it both, right? So for any fans that are hanging out on Bandcamp, um, but they're going to receive a 15, 15% commission, which is totally not that bad. Um, but again, you're going to save that 15% if you do it through Squarespace or Banzoogle or um, whoever hosts your website. Um, now, if you don't have a clear vision for your release, which is totally fine, and you're hitting the home studio, uh, launch a Patreon, right? Because Patreon is your really your online fan club, right? So get that going. Um, you know, I'll, again, I'll talk about building your pre-order campaign in a second, but Similar to that, you want to have a price point for everyone, right? Can folks join for $5 a month, right? Or, you know, can it go, you know, and then have prices in between, like I said, but go up to like $100 a month. Like I certainly know artists um, where all of their expenses are covered by their Patreon, right? And then they make even more income, you know, touring, selling merch, doing all these other things. Um, So either way, uh, between your, you know, uh, you know, you've set up your social media handles, you have your pre-order um, and or you have your Patreon. Start teasing out, you know, as you get into the studio, which we're going to um, get into in episode four, how to record with or without a budget. Um, at the same time, you know, you know your limits when it comes to marketing and social media. It's like, You don't necessarily need to be like live streaming from the vocal booth, right? Like obviously, understandably, so many artists, you know, really create a sanctuary um, when they're recording, Um, So, which I totally respect and get. But, you know, even just post a teaser of like a drum kit or an instrument or something or something in the studio, right? So folks know something is coming and then have that pre-order link and have that that Patreon link um, and just continue to monetize your music before it's even out. And both, you know, on Patreon, you're going to get the email addresses and more often than not, um, you will on Bandcamp as well. Um, So that's why I would recommend running a pre-order on your website where you definitely get the data. um, And then also on Bandcamp, you know, for any fans that are used to that experience and are hanging out there. And, you know, just quickly on building your pre-order campaign, I've already said this a few times, um, but just have a price point for everyone, right? Um, so have digital, you know, for five, ten dollars. Um, people still buy CDs, and it's a merch item. Um, you could sell those for fifteen. 
You could sell vinyl for, for 25. You could start autographing those things, right? So sell an autograph CD for like 20, 25, sell autograph vinyl for 50. Um, we're going to do a deep dive um, into merch in episode nine, but cost of goods sold is really important um, when it comes to pre-orders and, and merch um, and everything that we're talking about here. So what that means is like, I really like recommending posters. Um, I haven't pressed up posters in a long time, but when I was managing artists, they were like 10 cents, you know? So you can add that to your bundles. Um, you can autograph the poster, charge more. You can personally autograph the poster, charge even more. I mean, you could do a custom, you know, voicemail. You could do a cameo style video. You could do handwritten lyrics. You know, those things cost your time, basically. So you don't necessarily have to go um, print up hoodies. I mean, I'm not saying don't do that. And again, we'll talk more about merch um, in episode nine and how to do that efficiently. Um, but yeah, just, you know, be creative and savvy about your pre-order tiers. Because again, you can charge 50 bucks, 100 bucks for an autographed lyric sheet. And think about what you would want, um, you know, from artists that, that you're a fan of. Um, and you want each tier to get more enticing, right? Like I've definitely had experiences where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to get the digital or whatever. And then I'm like, oh, wait, like this, this $20 price point is cool. Oh, wait, this vinyl package is cool. And suddenly I'm spending like $100, right? Um, so yeah, so put, you know, put together your pre-order campaign um, and or your Patreon and then launch it, you know, launch it um, if, you know, if you're comfortable before you hit the studio or if you want to, um, work for a little bit like like I did on, on the book. Um, but then, you know, get it out on your social media, get it out to your text club, get it out to your email list. And like I said, as fans, um, you know, engage and, uh, you know, post comments and things like that, just reply, you know, with your uh, community list info, with, with your email list info, just keep driving traffic to that data collection because, again, not the most creative sounding thing, but you need to think of yourself as a tech company and continue to just gobble up um, those email addresses, those mobile phone numbers as much as possible. And I'll just say, um, you know, really quick to wrap up on that section, um, you know, like there's so much information about data, right? And there's articles and that can get really overwhelming, like really you need to get your fans' mobile phone numbers, their email addresses, and bonus points if you can get their zip or postcode. Um, and even that, you know, you do have access to location metrics generally on Spotify, you know, and on social media. So really just like mobile phone numbers, email addresses, that's gold. I would love to see um, an artist turn into a billion billionaire company, right? Just like all, all these, these tech platforms do. Um, you know, I'll just add really quick. I had the absolute honor of uh, interviewing Seth Godin on a different podcast I, I co-host called the I Voted podcast. Um, if you don't know who Seth is, Seth ultimately invented permission marketing, which is what we're talking about. Um, it is, you know, such a privilege when your fan says, here is my mobile phone number, here, here is my email address. And again, the reason tech platforms don't give that, you know, give you that information is because Seth said it better than I, you are the product on social media. You are the product on Spotify, right? So you need to turn that um, on its head a little bit, turn it around um, and, you know, get your fans to, to give you their data. 
So um, it's time to bring out our esteemed guest. Um, but just before I do, uh, like I said, I really want to iterate that. On, honestly, I'm not just saying this. I know I'm biased, but um, all 12 of these episodes are important, right? Like we're taking you through a step-by-step -step process. But if you want the Cliff's Notes version of the very long title of this podcast and the book that it's based on, the sustainable part is this episode. It's collecting those mobile phone numbers. It's collecting those email addresses. Um, and then I would say the other most important episode is episode 10, uh, which is going to be the revenue stream checklist, right? But I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're watching uh, or listening um, because you know, to me, this is one of the two most important episodes. This is the sustainable part. This is where we learn, you know, direct a fan. And, um, you know, to me, sustainable means having a career for the rest of your life, forever, or for as long as you want to. So I'm just going to share a little bit about our guest today. Um, Erica Fagundes is the head of music at community.com an SMS marketing platform that fosters personalized text communication between creators and their audiences. In this role, she cultivates direct artist relationships, establishes strategic partnerships with, with labels, and spearheads innovative marketing campaigns. Her efforts have, have driven, her efforts have driven, excuse, I'm a little tired today, so bear with me. Her efforts uh, have increased streaming and ticket purchases while elevating fan activation, engagement, and retention for her clients. Under Erica's leadership, community.com has become the leading SMS solution in the music industry with notable clients such as Alicia Keys, Ed Sheeran, Chance the Rapper, Kehlani, Luke Combs, the Apollo Theater here in New York City, and more. Beyond her current role, Erica actively champions initiatives within the music industry. She's a founding member of Los Angelinos for Artists, and she also provides advisory expertise to With Others, a platform that connects activists to audiences through, through intimate music events. Erica also teaches piano and voice lessons. Let's welcome Erica. Come on down. <laughs> Cheers to your liquid death. Cheers. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. Um, well, thank you so much for traveling all the way from Los Angeles. That means so much to us. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. When did you get in? Um, I actually got in for Memorial Day weekend. Nice. Um, so I'm originally from New York, so Good. I have lots of friends and family here. Um, so I spent Memorial Day with my family, and it was awesome. Lovely. Yeah. Where in New York are you from? So I grew up on Long Island. Nice. Um, and then I lived in Washington Heights for a few years, and mm -hmm. then... Yeah, and then that was really it. That was my main two places. Nice. And then Potsdam, yeah. Perfect. Um, yes, you are a graduate of the Crane School of Music at the prestigious SUNY Potsdam, so. Yeah, so I went to the Crane School of Music, so a lot of the East Coast people are usually familiar with it. So I studied music education and music business there, um, which was, you know, a huge base of my career. I think what's really interesting about Crane is that it's really a bachelor-based program versus a lot of other universities for music have also a really big master's program. So I really got to dig in more than most do in their bachelor program of like starting music business organizations and running events and all of that. So I think it was a huge, um, you know, help in kicking off my career pretty quickly. 
Wow. I yeah. love that. And, um, you know, we're obviously going to get into this right now, but your career is extraordinary, honestly. You are really good <laughs> at your job. Way too nice, but thank you. No, I'm, I'm very <laughs> impressed. So how did you begin working at RPM Music, which is Tony Bennett's artist management and strategic marketing company? Yeah. So, so part of um, my music business program required us to uh, do an internship for a semester um, that's when like internships were completely free. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. Um, but basically I had all these interviews with all these places. I did red light management, Warner, all of that. I got them all. And then I met this one woman that was just a beast and her name was Christine Barkley and she was running this, um, agency. And I was just really interested in, um, doing that. So it was just her. And so I took that role instead And she worked me. Like, I finished a semester of uh, hours in half the amount of time. So I finished my, that time period, but she um, was kind of starting up on her own and wasn't able to kind of pay a living wage at that time. So I decided to kind of be like, unfortunately, I can't take a role with you. That's when I first freaked out. I was like, what the heck did I just do? I just turned down my first job offer I've ever had. And then I actually went to a staffing agency um, that specialized in music and entertainment here. I'm forgetting the name of it now. Um, And they called me randomly because they needed a temp to come in to cover for a person that had been let go at um, Tony's company. And it was supposed to be a, a temp role, but I was determined to make it a permanent role. So um, in a couple months time, they they moved me to permanent. And yeah, and that's kind of how I got my start. So it's always like everyone has a different path, I think. And yeah. I think um, staffing agencies sometimes get a bad rep. But I think actually in the beginning of your career in music business, for those types of roles, those entry level roles, they actually have a lot available. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. And is is Danny Bennett, um, Tony's son, still managing? Yeah. Great. So Danny's absolutely amazing. And I think that's that's kind of another thing that's been really interesting in my career. And actually, one of my friends made me realize it is I really love digging into things. And I love smaller based companies that allow me to kind of dig my hands into all different aspects of the industry. And I yeah. think RPM was huge for me in terms of you know, most people that had been with Tony at that point had been with him for years. I had taken over a role for someone that was 10 years my elder. It was my first real job. And they kind of let me grow and develop and give me chances and opportunities to try things I'd never had before. And Danny was a huge part of that. And um, yeah, he's a great mentor to me as well. I love that. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So you had a massive role in the success of the Grammy-winning album Cheek to Cheek by Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. Mm -hmm. How did that project come together? Yeah, so so Tony and Gaga, before I um, worked with them, did an album, Duets 2, if you guys are familiar with Tony's um, career, and Gaga sang um, Lady is a Tramp with him on that album, and they really kicked off a really strong friendship. you know, they're both Italian-American, New Yorkers, all of that. And so Danny and Bobby, Gaga's manager, um, kind of came together and, they, and Gaga really wanted to do this album with Tony, which was super exciting. So that was... So sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So they, like, reapproached you guys and was like, Gaga's totally in the... In 
Um, I think it was kind of a mutual, like, so, you know, Tony wanted to do a, an album, um, with Gaga. So I think it actually came from Tony's end and Gaga was down and, um, yeah, this was right after art pop actually. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was a really, I, I think like it was an amazing experience kind of working with both of them. And, you know, I think you mentioned before, like I'm a musician myself, like, for Crane, like, you need to audition. So I studied opera. Um, I played piano, violin, and voice. So watching their artistry as musicians was, like, super impactful and exciting in my career and kind of, um, yeah, it, it was it was awesome. Yeah. I love that. So I'm going to share some of the work that um, you did at, at, mm-hmm. at RPM. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe I'm biased because I ran management companies for a long time, but I just think, like, Working at a management company is so great after college because you just, it, you know, you touch basically every part of the industry. Mm-hmm. So you oversaw social media promotion, marketing, and were an integral part of the production team for the PBS Emmy-nominated variety special featuring Tony, Tony of course, mm-hmm. and Gaga, serving as artist liaison for prominent figures like Alec Baldwin and Regis Philbin, and of course, the artists themselves. Mm-hmm. You led the logistical aspects of national and international tours, ensuring smooth VIP guest lists, meet and greets, touring contracts, artist writers, itineraries, and payrolls. Yeah. You excelled in media communication review and content editing. Well, I, I didn't even know Tony was a painter. This is so cool. Yeah. While, while contributing to the curation, exhibition, and sale of over 1,500 art pieces painted by by Tony Bennett. And also, you know, no big deal, managed the TonyBennett.com website and assisted, you know, Mr. Bennett in scheduling and coordinating his interviews. So Mm -hmm. what did all these experiences teach you, maybe, you know, both practically and even just, you know, dare I say, multitasking and and juggling? I I know you probably didn't do all that like the same week. Yeah. Yeah, I actually did all of one week. (laughs) Um, So I think... Like, I definitely learned a lot about, you know, your ability. Everyone is, most of the time, just trying their best. And most experts have started from a place of saying, yeah, I could do that. Like, absolutely. And just kind of Googling it or now ChatGPT or whatever it is. Like, figuring it out as you go. And I think that's kind of the main thing that I learned at RPM. That, like, there's always a way to figure it out and then make yourself an expert in that field. Like, I think also the artwork stuff was so scary for me because I knew nothing about artwork. Like, I had no idea what I was doing, but um, I kind of fell into it because I found a lot of his pieces that they hadn't been selling and properly, like, coordinating the sale of it. And so um, Sandy Rogers, who kind of ran that part of his aspect, kind of brought me on to help her with that. And where where did you find these pieces? How did that happen? (laughs) So when I first started RPM, the office was actually underneath Danny's townhouse in the West Village. And so it was, like, literally just draws of all of his sketches and watercolors and all of these things. And so one of the most interesting things I, I learned about Tony was when I was um, working for him was actually he was a painter first. So he cool. signs all of his artwork, Anthony Benedetto. Um, and then Bob Hope actually gave him his name, Tony Bennett, because his name was too long for the marquee. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was like, wait, this isn't properly even you know, again, this is my first job, and I saw the opportunity. This is, like, my first month in the job. I'm like, this isn't even properly, like, listed in any type of thing. We could be selling these, and they had a whole um, additional uh, storage space as well. So I kind of 
basically found like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of artwork that had never even been accounted for. And then also worked on, you know, doing different events with different museums as well. And yeah, it was awesome. So that was something I had absolutely no experience in, but I was like, yeah, I could do it, you know, and just figured it out from there. I mean, that is really crucial for up and coming industry folks. It's like, just try it. Like I said, Google is your friend. Now yeah. we have ChatGPT. Like, figure this stuff out. I mean, not to put her on the spot, but mm-hmm. Yancey is here, who was uh, in the audience yesterday and said, let me know, you know, if you need help with anything. Mm-hmm. Well, she's hired now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she's doing a great job. So, um, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Your voice is your biggest advocate yes. for sure. Yeah. Love it. So from there, you moved to London. Tell us about that. Yeah. That move. So, um, so I'm first generation American. So my mom is from Brazil and my dad's from Portugal. So at that time, that's, we're talking pre-Brexit when I moved to London. So, um, the UK like was still part of the EU. So I have a dual citizenship of Portugal with my dad being from there so I can live and work in Europe. And I was so interested in the international music market and how it worked. And I felt like it was such a big piece that I needed for my career. So um, I took a a trip there and I had um, an interview with a staffing agency actually. And there was some connection there. So um, again, going back to duets too, another song that was recorded by Tony on there was with Amy Winehouse. And that was actually the last song that she recorded after she um, passed away, uh, before she passed away, excuse me. So um, actually the recruiter was and I worked a lot on the Amy Winehouse Foundation stuff. A recruiter at that staffing agency was really close with Amy. And um, so that was kind of, I didn't know that at first, but it was kind of a relief. I was like, okay, there is some connection here. Um, And I left her office. And then one hour later, she called me. It was like, I know this is the last minute, but can you um, run to the other side of town? And you have, there's an interview for a company called Disturbing London. So I was like, sure, why not? And so I had that one interview and I I got that job. So um, I think you know, I'm really, really lucky to have my dual citizenship of Portugal because I think I was really attractive because I came from the New York music market I and I didn't require any visa. I didn't require anything additional. So um, I, I was really excited that they gave me that opportunity and RPM was super excited for me too. So, yeah. Amazing. And uh, do you speak Portuguese? I do. Fala Portuguese? No, but I've, I've been to Brazil and Portugal. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I got. Yeah. Um, did you? So you mentioned you did some work with the Amy Winehouse Foundation? That was with Tony. So, oh, cool. um, yeah. And then also when I was in London, um, they had this really awesome program for aspiring musicians to um, bring them into recording studios that like couldn't afford it and give them the opportunity to record their music with really um, prominent producers at that time and yeah, just give them the opportunity to learn and grow. And so I've, Amy Winehouse is probably my, one of my favorite musicians of all time. So yeah, it was really exciting to kind of bridge those gaps. And then with Tony, he, um, did a lot of different foundational, uh, different work for the Amy Winehouse foundation and then, um, kind of worked on like the donation process of him. I think it was a now I'm like going back 10 years. I feel like it was a piano that he signed, but it might have been something else that we kind of donated um, and raised money for it. Yeah. So cool. So what's Disturbing London and what did you do there? Yeah. So 
remember, I was working for Tony Bennett, and then I completely switched gears. So Disturbing London was a 360 company. So they did management, label work, publishing, um, did, had their own fashion line, and I was um, doing stuff for Tiny Tempo and WizKid. So um, WizKid, if you guys aren't familiar, is Afrobeats. So going from like a crooner to Afrobeats is com- kind of was so exciting, and I think definitely very much in my nature of like, I love to get to know the entire span of the music industry, like started in opera, like, you know, did acapella, whatever. I I sing with a band in New York whenever I'm here. Like, I love just talented musicians. Um, And so that was an awesome opportunity because the UK uh, space is a little bit smaller than the US market. So I really had an opportunity to get my footing and um, Dumi Oberoda, who is the founder of Disturbing London, really, really, again, gave me a lot of opportunities to kind of grow and enhance. So I started off by really doing a lot of executive assistant work and then kind of worked my way up to project management and then worked my way up to doing, so they also did events all over the world. So I did um, Disturbing Ibiza and Disturbing Cabo Verde and like all of these places. And then I started doing day-to-day management for Tiny and Wiz when they were in town and kind of... And uh, what's day-to-day management for folks that don't know? Yeah, so like Dumi was their main manager. So he kind of um, was the one that really broke down the deals with the labels, for example. But I'm kind of handling, in a way, like as, as... like, you know, underplaying this as it sounds, is it's kind of like a glorified assistant, if you want to think about it, where it's like you are making sure that everything that they have to do and attend runs smoothly and that their life is running smoothly so that they can do what they're best at, which is their art and their craft. So making sure that everything for the event is lined up or um, closing those brand partnerships deals and all of that so they can focus on what they're best at. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you did so much there. And then mm-hmm. um, you also served as a general manager of the fight, the, the flight club. Yeah. Not, so, not the fight club. No, the flight club. Um, so that was, so one of the managers, so there was an, a lot of other artists, obviously, at um, Disturbing London that they managed. One of them managed some up and coming artists in London. And he approached me to kind of handle the general management of the company as he kind of, they were kind of ready to take it to the next level. Um, Disturbing London was an umbrella of that, and I started to general manage that company and then start to manage my own artists, um, DJs like Mercedes Benson, who um, had two um, brands as well that I started to do um, brand work of social media, marketing, all of that. So one was Social social Fix, which was to... um, afford black talent opportunities in the industry. And then the other one was Future Sounds, which was their own DJ thing that um, she did a lot of times at the Ace Hotel and would invite people to go and was an events brand. Yeah, I love it. Again, it's just like, this is why I think, um, you know, especially for younger people entering the industry, like intern in management, get into management because you've covered events, marketing, you know, Mm -hmm. brands, artists, you know, it it just, um, it runs the gamut. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like that was, those two roles were a huge building block for me because it kind of proved to myself that I can figure it out, like whatever it is. Um, I remember like one festival, 
like Wiz brought in like 10 extra people from the guest list. Somehow I figured out how to bring them not only backstage, but into the festival. Like I figured it out. So there's always a way I think. And do you want to share how to do that? If you don't, I'm happy to share it, but go ahead. Cause I used to be a tour manager. So I feel you. <laughs> well, you're, you're running back and forth so much that the yeah. security guards know you at that point. Yeah. And you brought in people with actual things and yes. you just, you're so busy that and you, they know that you're on edge, that it's almost like that works in your favor. So just yeah. look busy and no one bothers you, I guess. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. I would say, and I think what you're describing is also like confidence. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was like, I, I have something to do. I, you know, I got to go. Yeah. Okay. Yep. See you later. Yeah. I remember when the Dresden Dolls were opening for Nine Inch Nails and it was like a theater tour and obviously Nine Inch Nails can play. Mm -hmm bigger rooms yeah. and the Dresden Dolls are from Boston. It's like, you know, when you're opening on a tour like that, you get 10 guest list spots. Mm -hmm. And there were so many people that, that helped that band in early days. They've always been, the band's always been really generous about guest lists. And um, my now uh, colleague and intern at the time, Katrina, I think she snuck in like 30 oh people my gosh. Yeah. or something. It's, but, it gets crazy, I think, yeah. at a certain point. It's like, Comical. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, the security guard is really starting to look at me weird. I'm like, I'm like we're almost done. We got him in. Like, yeah. But like I said, you figure it out. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. You know, my tour managing role used to be do it till you get yelled at. And if you get yelled at, come find me. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good piece of advice. Thanks. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. So... From there, you went to Los Angeles mm -hmm. um, and became head of engagement at Pollen. So what's, yeah. what's Pollen? So uh, Pollen, so again, in the spirit of just randomly moving across genres, that is my career. I started working for Pollen, which at that time was called Verve. Um, so it was uh, focused on music uh, festival ambassador programs. So it had really taken off in London and they had just um, started their um, branch in um, America at that time. I was getting a little bit homesick, like yeah. the, the doom and gloom of London. I loved London, don't get me yeah. wrong, um, but it is very dreary. And so the opportunity to kind of move back to the States came up. So I, I took it and um, basically it was a peer-to-peer -peer marketing. So the idea being that, you know, you have fans that already know and love your brand. Yeah. And if you let them tell their friends by giving, you know, um, awards, like maybe a free ticket or something like that, then uh, more people then become a fan of you and so on and so forth. So basically, the idea was to take people that were super fans of like Governor's Ball mm -hmm. and have them in invite their friends, which they were already going to do anyway, but entice them with maybe saying like, oh, and you get one free ticket or um, whatever it may be, or that we used to have VIP sections in those festivals, so then they can... Um, take a breather, have a really great um, view of the main stage, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So Verve was uh, business to business. So it was, um, it was basically as if we were running, you know, Governor Ball Ambassador Program. So it was the official, official ambassador program of Governor's Ball. So it was white labeled. But um, with Pollen, that's when we took it to, okay, we have all these connections with all these music festivals. Mm -hmm. What if we made a platform that a person that was interested and good at kind of being that promoter of their friends. Like everyone probably has that, that person in their friend group that's like, we should do this. And for some reason, everyone says yes. Yeah. And so um, that was the people that usually joined Pollen. So they would be able to use their points of however they, you know, 
um, told other, other ones of their friends to go to multiple programs and put them all against one thing. So um, yeah, and so I launched that program in the US. And, wow, yeah. amazing. And I would almost say, you know, what you're referencing is kind of like micro, micro influencers, right? Absolutely. Like they, like, that's a, a perfect way of putting it. Like it, you, like, again, everyone has that person in their friend group that is the micro influencer of their mm-hmm. friend group. And, you know, it's like, okay, like, you know, Emily said to do it. And I know whenever Emily suggests something, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I want to do it. And it kind of just rolls from there. So yeah. I think, you know, big, huge artists have, impact on a different scale than Mm -hmm. smaller artists do. Smaller artists have your ear and your attention and your love and devotion. And I think it's the same for any, any type of influencer, even outside of the sphere of being an artist, but yeah. And we're going to dive in deeper to that in episode seven, how to market with or without a budget on how to really with, with love and respect, put your fans to work for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you know, again, the work that you did there was incredible. Like you said, you launched the pollen ambassador program to become one of the largest in the U S um, you developed social media and SMS marketing campaigns that scaled platform usage 10 times Mm -hmm. in, uh, or 10 X in six months, you leverage consumer insights, analytics, and market trend analyses to drive informed commercial decisions, Mm -hmm. measure, uh, measured uh, return on investment and ensured a hundred percent client and partner retention rate for subsequent seasons. You're really good at your jobs. I'm telling you, it's very impressive. Um, I think also up until that point, I was working in music management and this was a music tech company. So I had a really good understanding of intuition, but what Pollen gave me was an understanding of data and understanding data and combining that with intuition, which I think a lot of times in the music industry, you know, people kind of get a little nervous about the word data because it is not creative or anything like that. But when you use data to the power of your intuition and combine those things, it really is unstoppable. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the crux of like my marketing belief. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about intuition, but I also feel like because you worked in management and Mm -hmm. so you were on the artist side for so long, like, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this, like there can be tech platforms that we get pitched all the time. And I'm like, this artists don't need this, or this totally. isn't actually helpful. Right. Mm-hmm. So you added, so I'm sure you added so much value to Pollen where it's mm-hmm. just like, well, here's what worked, you know, for totally. the artists that of all ages and different genres too. Yeah, exactly. Know? And I think that creative background and like that knowledge from the, the management part of it mm-hmm. is what made me able to use the data in a really conscious and specific way. Whereas yeah. A lot of times, if you only have one or the other, um, if you're only data-driven, you're not able to see the creative aspects or opportunities that might be outside of what happened previously. Mm-hmm. You can't, like, look to the future, whereas, like, music is constantly reinventing and changing and, and pushing boundaries. So I was never afraid of that. I really loved that aspect. So kind of figuring out how, okay, this is a new client. What is the best way, based on the demo that we currently have on Pollen? to market to them and what will they kind of gravitate towards or what kind of segment segmentation of audiences should we do to make this the most effective? Amazing. And I know this is newer, but I, I'm so fascinated and I want to talk to you about this offline too. Mm-hmm. You're a strategic advisor at With Others. Yeah. What's With Others? Oh, With Others is awesome. So um, it, it, have you guys gone to So Far Sounds ever? Okay. So, so <laughs> Yancey so has. Basically, it's... 
uh, it really spawned from, you know, COVID, everyone was really focused on social good. And I think there was a realization, especially for millennials and Gen Z, is that a core of our, who we are is associated with things that we care about. Like we, we can't, we're not separate from those things and music and um, causes that we care about are attached. So, and especially for musicians, there's things that you guys are passionate about and there's things that you guys are care about and want to advocate for and use your platform for. So basically the idea with others is for artists to use that platform so um, artists can um, have basically a, the portion of the ticketing for every single one goes to whatever cause that they chose. And then also there's an advocate for that activism, um, for, for that cause that comes and speaks about it. And then you could choose as an audience member to donate or give your time or just ask questions or whatever it may be, or just go to the show because you participated in something. So you've got to enjoy a great concert. So it's just combining social good with uh, music. Um, over causes that musicians care about. Incredible. And I, again, I know it's early days, but can folks like sign up or? Yeah. So um, right now it's, it's very early days. So we launched in LA. Um, and so I think very soon we're going to be in New York. So um, yeah, that'll be exciting. Very cool. Keep us posted. Yeah, we'll spread we'll the do. word. So now into the vegetarian meats of this episode. Mm -hmm. This has all led to your work at community.com yes. over the past three years. So what is community.com? I mean, I, I shared it, but I'm sure I bought yeah. it. So, so community.com is an SMS marketing platform, but I think what differs from, you know, maybe you guys all are on some five-digit short code of like getting a a verification code or even like maybe some companies that just send you one-way conversational things we really focused and grew from music. So we were trying to answer the question of how do you connect with your, your fans in an authentic and intimate way, but at scale. So we're focused on two-way communication. So basically the ability, ability for you to communicate back with your, friend, uh, your fans instead of it being just a one-way blast. So it's not just like a notification board. You can actually have conversations. Um, and yeah, so uh, you alluded to this before, but we really started from music. But since the success of music, we've now grown into politics. We have the president of the United States on the platform. Wow. We have the Yankees on the platform. Um, we have uh, Pretty Little Liars on the platform. So anything around the entertainment and influencer space, we and obviously small businesses and all of that. But anyone that has an audience and they want to communicate in that way, that's what community is for. What is working or, you know, what are some strategies the White House is doing, the Yankees are doing, you know, Pretty Little Liars are doing, like, because that's all so different. Yeah. So I'm, I'm head of music, so I don't want to sure. um, butcher what my, my colleagues are doing. But it is similar in the sense of ultimately everyone is has a fan base or people that want to listen. And I think what makes SMS so powerful is that it's the only place that we have notifications on for anymore. Most of us, like it, we, we are on SMS every day talking to our friends and family. So, you know, 98% of these are open in the first five minutes. You're seeing two to three times the click through rate of email and social combined. So even though it's a smaller percentage of your, than your social audience, it's going to be way smaller numbers. It's the people most likely to be interested in whatever it is that you are doing. So in the music sense, most likely to 
stream your album, most likely to buy tickets to that show, most likely to um, want to buy your merch, and most likely to, especially for up and coming and aspiring musicians, most likely to tell their friends and want to be a part of that journey with you. So, I mean, it's your super fans. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it really is a place for your, your super fans and to kind of what you alluded to for something that you're going to do in a future episode, but like kind of putting them to work for you. Like, yeah. you know, it, it is almost like a modern day street team in mm-hmm. a way. Um, yeah. And it's, it's literally permission marketing, you know, which, which Seth Godin to- uh, coined. Mm-hmm. Um, because these super fans have given you their permission to have their mobile phone number and communicate with them. And, you know, historically, those are the fans, you know, which you alluded to as well, like, that are going to give you the most money, right? Like someone that's just like, yeah, I, I, I want you to text me. I, I want notifications from you. They're the ones that are gonna, going to be buying, mm-hmm. you know, the $100 bundles as opposed to, and there's nothing wrong with this, a more passive fan, you know, that's just checking out um, your music on streaming. Yeah. And, and something you mentioned before, I was like, man, that's spot on, which is how social media makes its money. So yeah. social media really makes its money on ad spend. So the bigger your following grows, the less percentage of people are organically seeing your posts. But those people are following you. That's your fan base. Like, and you don't even have access to that data. And so it becomes a world where you end up, in order to have access to the fans that are following you, to know what you have going on, have to pay um, this provider. With community, you could blast out to everybody, to your heart's content. Or you can get really segmented and granular to the point of, I want to send this to everyone in within 10 miles of Williamsburg over the age of 21 that said that they um, missed out on tickets to my show and say, hey, I actually had a couple tickets open up. Do you guys want to go? Um, So it's kind of taking that power back and utilizing data in that same way, in a meaningful way, to connect to the exact um, band that you're looking to connect to. That's so cool. I mean, to me, it sounds like community.com is how you literally... Um, you know, build yourself as a, a tech company, as an yeah. artist. And it was really cool to hear everything that you did with all the email stuff with the mm-hmm. Dresden Dolls. It's almost like, you know, now our emails are inundated. Yeah. Like, and so it's very different now. It's almost like the modern day version of email where it is really the only place that you can connect directly with that fan versus just blasting out to the masses. Okay. Um, and email gave you that opportunity to be a little bit more segmented. And I think that's what community does on the SMS standpoint. Absolutely. And so what drew you to working at community.com? Um, so, well, I kind of alluded, like at Pollen, we were we were doing basically a Band-Aid version yeah. of, of what community does. And so I've really always been interested in fan engagement and how to make fans feel like they're on a journey with you and grow with you. And um, I I love that aspect of things. Mm -hmm. And so I think what drew me to community was how innovative it was and how they were really working with music versus Mm -hmm. trying to make music fit into their own peg. It really was driven by what artists and and, um, management companies and labels were saying that they needed. So we, we built something that is perfect like for music not perfect nothing's perfect but you know we have the integrations that people are looking for where we have all of the the major um segmentation things that you need so i was really interested in i've always been drawn to startup companies or smaller companies and i was really interested in kind of having a footprint in that and and bringing it to that level that 
you know, we're having a conversation about community.com that everyone kind of knows community.com now. Mm -hmm. So that was what interested me the most. And what is the experience like for the artists? Like, can they log in and respond to messages? Can they opt to have, you know, all the messages on their phone or they don't want them on their phone? Yeah, so for the artists, there's an app or they can go on their their desktop and it looks very similar to, um, you know, your regular messaging service, Mm -hmm. except the, the biggest thing that I think is super useful for artists, especially when they get like, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people on their community is how do you keep up with that in that organic way? Mm-hmm. So we have this section called campaigns. So through machine learning and natural language processing, we're able to group together messages that are similar enough that you can respond authentically, but at scale. So for example, if you ask, hey, what's your favorite song from my last album? Everyone might say their favorite song in a different way, but there's only so many songs on the album and their meaning is the same. So you can authentically message everyone that said whatever you know your track one was with maybe how you went about writing that or maybe send a video or a voice memo. So it is meaningful to that fan, but it makes it so you can um, be able to not get overwhelmed by it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you began as director of music partnerships mm-hmm. at Community. You, you've been, ele- you know, you were then elevated to senior director mm-hmm. and you're now head of music. Tell mm-hmm. us about that evolution because we definitely have, you know, young aspiring industry folks in the audience. How do you, how do you get promoted? You figure it out. <laughs> exactly. Um, no. So I think I, I came on, it was a really small team. It was just me and one other person. Wow. Um, and so there was an opportunity um, for me to go up with her kind of uh, going out and it was an awesome opportunity. Like, mm-hmm. I, and I had to kind of grab it by the horns and just, I didn't really miss a beat, which is I think what ended up, you know, me solidifying that role now. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those things that I knew that there was a lot of things that could be improved. For example, we have partnerships with all three of the major labels and a lot of the independent labels. So how do we start to grow those, um, grow those partnerships, but also make it so it's impactful for those artists as well. So that's what I, I really focused on. I really focused on um, not only label partnerships, but management partnerships and artist partnerships. And I think that's what ultimately led to me kind of getting to where I am now at the company. And again, I just think your man, I'm probably biased, but your Mm -hmm. management experience is so important because Mm -hmm. you know what artists actually need, what their teams actually need, Mm -hmm. like, you know, how important monetization is. Mm -hmm. And also like, you know, there are, I, hopefully you're changing this, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of artists that intuitively get this and they'll have like a WhatsApp list or something with their fans, but it's like, you don't want to give out your personal phone number. Yeah. You know? And well, I think to your point, like all of the different people that I've talked to in my career, whether those be different managers, artists, event people, producers, mm-hmm. um, tour managers, et cetera, have given me the ability to really be able to talk to almost every single person in the music industry yeah. and make, um, make it make sense to them and what they care about, which mm-hmm. is really what has helped me in my career. So I think that that can be also in an artist career, like you're constantly talking to different people and you want to make sure that you are directing whatever it is that um, you need to get across to that person in a way that it resonates with them. So um, 
that's kind of the, the crux of like that. Um, oh, just how artists are already in, into it. I mean, it was oh, more yeah. of a comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some, like some artists, to your point, absolutely get it. But yeah, mm-hmm. it gets to a point that it's uncontrollable. Like yeah. when you think even of your your DMs on Instagram, it's just like, there's no way for you to keep up with that. Yeah. And also, you know, there's there's no way for you to collect that data in a meaningful way to then message them to the point when it does get to the point that you have 10,000 people that's on your WhatsApp. How do you transfer that to a different platform that, you know, has opted in to receive text messages from you? So, yeah. And I don't even think, unless they change it, I don't even think you can have 10,000 people on a WhatsApp list. I think it's limited. So that's the other... Yeah, I mean, again, the main reason is not mm-hmm. to not give out your personal phone number. Yeah, but. I was making a number, but yes, I have I have no idea actually. I think it's like a few hundred. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, very very limited. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, you know, as you heard, um, I genuinely feel that community.com is how artists build a sustainable career forever. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, this is direct to fan communication. All this other stuff is kind of BS. Like in my opinion, all, all the other things pe- people focus on should be driving traffic, you know, to, to your community.com um, account, to, you know, to your email list. So, you know, if you, maybe you disagree, but like, wh- like, why is that so? Like, why do you think that community.com or maybe you don't is how artists build a sustainable career forever? Or why do I think that? Yeah, no, I love that you think that. Um, and I, I agree. I think one of the, the things that I hit on before is, you know, social media owns that audience. Like mm-hmm. you ultimately, like, you know, we saw the stuff with TikTok going on or whatever. So like, let's say you built a huge audience on TikTok and then all of a sudden TikTok goes away. Like you've lost the ability to communicate with that audience. And I think what community does and where it's really powerful is if you need to communicate with your audience, yeah. whether that be everybody in your audience or a specific specific subset, you can. And like that ownership over your audience, I think is huge, especially for aspiring artists. Like community is amazing for artists of all size, but I actually always really point out for aspiring artists or like people right on that crux of things, that's when it's super impactful. So you have those people that are, diehards that love you, that want to see you succeed and taking those people with you on that journey and them being able to watch that growth with you. Like maybe you guys in the recording studio and recording it, like I have some really cool, like artists do this all the time where maybe they'll, they'll send like a a demo, like scratch and say like, I'm still working on this or whatever. Or one artist like invited um, fans to send voice memos to her and like made that the bottom of her track. So wow. kind of bringing them into your world, yeah. I think is that sustainable piece where it's like, wow, this person has welcomed me into being a part of their project. And that's what really keeps a fan with you like through and through from day one to day 1001. And we will talk in the next episode, Get Your Business Affairs Together, on how to handle getting voice memos uh, from a fan mm-hmm. and building it into your tracks. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that is I didn't so, even plan that. Yeah, that's so cool creatively, <laughs> but it's like, you know, you want to make sure that's uh, taken yeah, care totally, of on, yeah. on the legal end. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples of, you know, creative ways that artists are using community.com? Yeah, so there's a lot on a daily basis. Um I actually want to start with uh, a not creative way, but a super, not not creative, but I think a super impactful one, which is 
kind of something that you hit on, which was pre-sales. So like pre-sales for tours, pre-orders, blah, blah, blah. Like if you promote your community number and say, hey, text me or and um, I'll send you a snippet of my song, blah, 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 or text me and I'm going to do a, a pre-sale. I'm going to give you the pre-sale code for the tour. That's, again, getting the exact type of people that you want in your community. Those mm-hmm. are the people that are interested in pre-ordering or interested in that pre-sale. So they're going to be interested in everything else that you need to you need to market to them. That's part of your livelihood. Um, so, like, you know, Kehlani, like, did a pre-sale with us, doubled her community audience size in less than 24 hours. And then when she did the pre-sale, sold out of New York and, I think, Atlanta – um, shows just in the pre-sale and then, you know, put put up two new shows for the on-sale. So that was before it even went on sale. So I think that even though it's not as the creative aspect, I think is huge thinking about the growth and what you have to do, what you have to give. So if you have a piece of content, if you have a pre-order, if you have a pre-sale, that's an amazing opportunity to grow your audience and community and convert them with something that is a, why am I doing this? Yeah. Um, and especially also like on tour in venues, like we have QR codes, we have links, you can promote the phone number on stage. Like they, you have their full attention. There is no social media. They've mm-hmm. come to your show because they love you. Or maybe if you're an opener, like they've come to your show and discovered you and want to continue learning about your journey. So take advantage of that. Um, and then on the more creative front, there's so many different ways that people um, use it. I think Recently, Andy Grammer did something that I, I loved. So he basically was like, hey, I want to give away. It's not I want to give away. I want to uh, do some um, merch pieces just for my community. Um, and what type of pieces are you guys most interested in? And gave some options. So it, you know, clustered really well. So the most popular one went at the top. And a lot of people were interested in, like, pieces of his poetry that um, could, you know, be sold that were designed in a way. Then he sent a follow-up to all those people that responded and was like, thanks so much. I'm thinking about doing this. Like, here's some design layouts. Which ones are your favorites? So again, it's almost like a polling feature to let you know the most active percentage that are most likely to buy. What are they most into? So it's kind of almost fueling your marketing strategy for you. Um, And then, yeah, and so now he's uh, gearing up to give away these, like, limited edition prints for his community um, that are only available for them. So then again, for that fan, they're getting something tangible. And you kind of mentioned like, you know, that cost yeah. is less, but for that fan, that's that's one of 50 or one of whatever. And that and that's super meaningful and impactful. So I love that. Um, Bryson Tiller did something awesome where he um, released a song only, well, so it was Killer Instincts 2's, I think, anniversary on Halloween. And so he kind of sent voice memos while he was in the studio being like, hey, I'm going to send this only to you guys. Share wherever you want, but I'm never going to be talking about it on my socials, which he has not. And then in the studio, he's like, I know I said midnight, but I'm wrapping up the last minutes of things. And it was kind of very real. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like on the edge of their seat. And then he released it on SoundCloud. It it crashed the site. So then he tried to do Dropbox. Then he went back to SoundCloud. So it was like everyone was on this roller coaster with him. And so, yeah, the whole um, Killer Instincts 2 that he did is on SoundCloud as a private SoundCloud link that only his community got, which I thought was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you're saying is like, 
okay, so you're launching a pre-order, you're launching a tour. It's like, hey, sign up for my community list. That's how you can exclusively get this. And maybe like you launch your pre-order. And like you said, if you're comfortable sharing a demo or maybe you have a track done, if that's the only place you can get it is through your community.com list, you're going to get all those mobile phone numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also like putting your audience to work for you, like five seconds of summer has a subgroup that said that they were interested in being their street team, right? Yeah. So they'd be like, hey, go and post my community number on your Twitter or go and put this poster up in their streets. Or a lot of times people do it the opposite way where they, maybe their algorithm, like they're getting less likes on their social media. Mm-hmm. So you you push to your community audience and say, hey, I just posted something on TikTok or Instagram. Go and like it and put this emoji in the comments so I know you're part of my community fam that's going to drive the algorithm to think that there's a massive amount of people in a short span period of time. Because remember, like 98% of these are open in the first five minutes. So all of a sudden, if everyone's clicking this link at the same time and commenting at the same time, especially on uh, TikTok, where, you know, there's the For You page Mm -hmm. that drives up the algorithm and makes you seen by people that maybe wouldn't have seen you before. Wow. I love it. Um, Is there anything else you want to add about community and what people should be doing, what's working? Yeah, um, hmm. I think that, you know, taking ownership of your craft and your audience is something that's hugely powerful for you in your career. And those are the people, like, I've kind of already alluded to this, but, like, they want to be on that journey with you. So allowing them in as opposed to, you know, um, I think there's sometimes especially in today's world, a fear of like it not being perfect, Mm -hmm. but like there is perfection in that growth and there's perfection in bringing people into that journey with you and maybe getting their, not even their opinions, but like kind of having those real conversations. I think ultimately your um, vulnerability is your power. And Mm -hmm. I think that fans are looking for that today. Like they're looking to know who that person is. Like, kind of even bringing it back to like with other stuff, you know, everyone has a heart and we are way more open about what we, what we care about. So they want to know artists that they love their music, that they resonate with who they are as a person. So using community or any other platform to show that part of you as well. That's exactly right. And, you know, we're going to talk about this more in uh, episode six, setting up your release and distribution plan. But your fans want to support you in the best way possible, but they don't know how unless you tell them. Mm -hmm. And the majority of artists are just like, okay, like my music's out. Here's the Spotify link, right? So unless you're telling them like, this is how you can support me the most, they have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. And Um, if you are interested in getting a community, you guys can email musicpartnerships at community.com and we'll um, set up a little discount for for anyone, for any listeners on your podcast. That's that's news to me. Yeah. So musicpartnerships at community.com. Hit us up. Just um, put in the subject uh, that you are a listener. The longest podcast. The longest podcast title (laughs) or Emily or whatever. Um, And Um, I'll make sure to set you guys up with a discount. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Love it. So you're also, okay, so that's our community section, but we'll have Q&A in a second. Um, You're also a founding member of Los Angelinos for Artists. So, um, you know, I'd love to learn more about what you're doing there. Yeah. So I was actually approached by this company called uh, Grapevine that does, I was kind of looking for you know, I'm not a millionaire or anything, but I want to give back. So I think what they do is kind of cool where they 
uh, ask for donations on a yearly basis that are manageable, like maybe like $100 a quarter. And then I get together with peers that are also in the music industry and figure out how we want to um, support a local cause, whether that be in music education or artists, recording studios or whatever it may be. So we change it every quarter. Um, so that's been really exciting for me to get involved in. And I'm sure that there's one in New York too. Um, it's again by this company called Grapevine that does things outside of music, but um, the specific one that I'm involved in is Los Angelinos for uh, artists, yeah. Very cool. So you've done so much, you do so much. How do you find balance in your career? Um, I think like anyone, so now I'm in my 30s, right? And I think in my 20s, that was something that I really had to learn and grow from. Um, And to be honest with you, I know that this is like um, an unpopular opinion, but I do think your 20s are for the hustle and like taking advantage of like the energy that you have and pushing and growing and maybe you're not getting paid as much as you want to, but like proving yourself is a huge part in the music industry and just showing up and, you know, those opportunities come. So I know that that's sometimes an unpopular opinion, but I still really do stand by that. And I think it did, but I have burnt out before, right? And so um, kind of realizing that there needs to be a balance in order for me to continuously do a good job or else it's going to be this ebb and flow of feeling high and low. Yeah. one of the things I've done, honestly, simply just like no notifications for my emails um, is huge. No notifications for Slack um, and just kind of really appreciating my weekend for the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I am with you on all of those things. I yeah. do not understand people, people who have notifications. <laughs> my weekends are off yeah. um, and it makes me a better worker. Yeah. And on Monday, person. I'm ready to like yeah. hit it. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. It's amazing sometimes how like things on Friday, I'm like, why is this so hard? Yeah. And then I do the exact same task on Monday, and it's like, fine. Totally. It's no big yeah, deal. 100%. Awesome. Well, anything else you want to add about your career, community? No, I think we've, we've hit a lot <laughs> of things. Um, I thank you again so much for having me. I yeah. really appreciate it. And I hope that this was useful to you guys. And yeah. Well, it's Q&A time. So, Yancey, awesome. you're in charge of the mic. Um, does anyone have questions for Erica? We're all community.com experts. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. And introduce yourself, please. Uh, my name is Andres, everybody. Uh, hey. Thank you to Emily and to everybody to be here. Hey. Uh, my question for you would be, how do you uh, deal with time management? It seems like you're dealing with a lot of things, a lot of uh, artists, just also personal things. How do you find time? You know, is there any books that help you out? Is there anything yeah. specifically that you know, helps you get through all of that responsibility? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm forgetting the name of this book, but I read it in my 20s and it did change. I'm sure that there was other things in this book, but there was one piece of information that kind of stuck with me, which was this ABCD method. So um, basically to-do lists, like what happened, what used to happen with my to-do lists is this basically just random trains of thought of like, oh shoot, like I forgot to send this email or I forgot to, you know, book my flight to New York or whatever. So Um, A is highest priority for the day. So it's like this absolute, oh, it's Eat That Frog. So Eat That Frog was the book. It's really short. Um, But A being the idea is like, that's the biggest task that you need to accomplish. So a lot of times I used to like do all my emails first, even and like kind of dread that big project that I needed to do. So the idea of Eat That Frog is getting that A thing done that you have to get done by that day. B is 
it'd be nice to get it done. Maybe someone else is going to be angry that you didn't get it done. But ultimately, if you don't get it done by that day, everything is going to be okay. So those are your Bs. So those go after. Um, Cs are those nice to-dos, like maybe call a friend that you haven't um, spoken to in a while or, you know, go grocery shopping or whatever it is. And those might go grocery shopping might be a C on Monday and then a, an A on mm-hmm. Thursday. Um, and then D is delegate, which I think was a huge one for me. Like, can I delegate this to somebody else? And uh, E is eliminate where it's yeah. no longer a, a thing. Um, and then the other thing was this, uh, I'm going to butcher how Mel Robbins said it exactly, but the idea was juggling a bunch of different balls at the same time. So family, work, friends, whatever, and identifying that sometimes uh, things are a glass ball and sometimes things are a rubber ball and those things change. So maybe one week work is that glass ball and I need to really focus on work and kind of uh, deprioritize friends and personal life and all that. And then another week, family is most important. I need to deprioritize um, work. And so understanding what that glass ball is consistently um, really helps in terms of time management. I, I love that. And, and I'll just add, I think even to figure out which category it is, for me, I do five-minute meditations. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was younger and I was a manager and running management companies, I'm sure you can relate to this, mm-hmm. I would wake up and feel totally overwhelmed. And mm-hmm. I, I know we can all relate to that, right? Um, and then I meditate, you know, just closing my eyes, focusing on my breath. And I'm not even trying to do this, but my brain... I've never heard that before. But like puts it in those A, B, C, D. Yeah. It's like, oh no, I just do this first and then I do that and then I yeah. do that. Um, so, you know, and then you can do it anywhere, right? I've meditated for five minutes before this. Like I meditate before like big calls, like mm-hmm. even writing a big email and it just like settles and focuses um, your thoughts in my, I mean, there's, you know, amazing spiritual benefits too, but totally. for the practicality of work and how overwhelming our society is that that works for me. Yeah. Hope that was helpful. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. I appreciate your time. Of course. Uh, Remind us who you are again. Trevor. My name is Trevor. I'm an aspiring musical artist. Cool. And um, this this question is for both of you. Mm -hmm. You know, you both, you seem like big proponents of like data, like learning about Mm -hmm. your audience. I'm just wondering if there's like, based off your experience, if there's like certain data that you, that like, like what, what are like the top types of data you think that are important to, to get? And also does that like differ based on the type of artists and like who, who they are as a person? Do you want me to You're the guest. Um, I think location is really mm-hmm. important. So like targeting people about, especially aspiring stuff. So like you might have a gig all of a sudden last minute in LA that you've gotten the opportunity to go to. And so um, being able to target any particular piece of your audience that's in Los Angeles that very minute is super helpful. Um, Also age demos and how people tend to, um, you know, communicate with each other based on those age demographics and what social platforms that they use um, can be really helpful. So like, you know, the way that you speak to an audience that's like in the age 45 and up is different than you speak to an audience 18 to 24. So you can segment those out like on community or like other platforms where it's like, I want to send, maybe you're marketing that same exact thing 
in different ways. Like 18 to 24, I'm sending it with this type of language. 45 and up, I'm sending it with this type of language that kind of, re again, resonates with whatever audience you're talking to. Um, and then also, where what DSP do they listen to your music on could be a really useful one. So and what's a DSP? Um, so Apple, Spotify. Um, so any, like, let's say you end up getting on a, um, a playlist on Spotify, right? And you really want to target people that listen on Spotify and try and get uh, people to listen to that playlist, you can target people with that um, but if you know where they listen to your music. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's mobile phone, uh, mobile phone numbers, email addresses, and then location for sure. Mm -hmm. um, again, you, can often, you often have some access to location on Spotify, um, on social media, but really in my experience, the collection is mobile phone numbers, email addresses. Um, and, you know, on one hand, it's the same for everything, right? Like um, Erica was just talking about working or, you know, the company working with the White House and, and TV shows and sports teams. I actually managed a pro swim team at one point. This was before you guys existed, but launched um, launched a text list because um, if anyone knows who Katie Ledecky is, she was on our team. So that was part of what we yeah. put out there. Like, hey, you want to hear from Katie Ledecky? Like, and people were just like signing up immediately, right? Yeah. So it's the same concept, but, you know, really, and this is, you know, this word is in this episode's title, you were talking about, um, you know, like marketing as far mm -hmm. as like how you communicate with your audience. But at the same time, whether you're us as the pro swim team or you're you, you know, putting out your music, authenticity is queen, yeah. you know, in my experience, you know, and it's like what we were talking about yesterday with getting your art together. It's like, what is, you know, it's like, and I'm not saying it's easy to find this flow either, but it's like, be yourself, right? Instead of like, you know, trying to be what you think other people like are interested in or whatever. Mm -hmm. So finding that authentic voice for sure. Yeah. I mean, I completely skipped over collection, which is hysterical, but like, you know, Instagram gives you all these demos and all of that, but you can't do it. Like, you can't say, I want to send this to everyone in LA or whatever. So yes, you need to, you need to collect the phone numbers yeah. so then you can actually do the targeting. Whereas like a lot of platforms right now, you can see it and you're like, wow, that's cool. And then can't really do anything about it. So, yeah. And I know, um, and this was years ago when I interviewed Zoe Keating for the forward of the book, like she literally just puts out a poster board with her um, text message collection number, mm -hmm. like at, at the merch table, because she, you know, I'm sure you guys can relate. It's like, uh, you know, we have the email list sheets or whatever. And then she's like, I, I wasn't that great at like loading it into the system. Right. So now I just have this poster board with the number and then folks yeah. can just sign up. Totally. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure my clients are tired of hearing me say this, but like in venue promotion is huge. Yes. Like you have their full attention. There is no social media algorithm. They're at your show. They're listening to you be so talented. Like yeah. they want to continue talking to you and like, watching your journey so um whether that be at a merch table and like having some reason to text not like if just saying text blah 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 fine that's fine but if you say text blah 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 to um get a discount at the merch table or text blah 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 for a video of me backstage warming up like what is the reason for yes. texting like it's like why are they doing it? Um, really helps with that. And what would you want as a fan too? Yeah. Like put yourself in their shoes. And you're in the perfect position because I know you're working on a release, right? So really like everyone you're coming into contact with, you should be like, hey, do you want to join my community list? You know, and start with friends, 
family, neighbors, right? Like these are actually going to be your biggest supporters. Um, I have a friend named Emlyn Brodsky who's, who's from New York and she sold out the Mercury Lounge and it was like packed with her friends and family. She was like, my grandmother is here. My mom is here, you know? So, um, you know, and so it's, it's just about, um, you know, just continuing to ask for that information. Don't, don't be shy. It's not always going to come to you. So just like, Hey, will you, you know, I'd love to stay in touch. Would you like to sign up for my community list? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Any other questions? Yeah, get up there. Hi, thanks so much for being here. Of course. It's wonderful. My head is spinning in a good way. <laughs> good. Um, uh, my name is Drew. I'm an aspiring hey. musician. And my question is, um, it sounds as though there are opportunities for um, a passive marketing or even sponsorship because now you've got this community you have this group this mm -hmm. uh this this uh community that has value yeah so you know at, at what point do you kind of start a conversation mentioning you're a local brewery or maybe your local brewery contacts you or maybe you're having a conversation about it's a lifestyle conversation about Great. gee i love skateboarding maybe there's an opportunity yeah. for your local skateboard manufacturer to sponsor or, you know, yeah. uh, is, is that a part of this at all, if, if I'm understanding it correctly? That's a great question. I don't, I don't think your head is spinning. I actually think you're like taking it to that next level of like, yeah, there's the first party data of where are you from, how old you are, blah, blah, blah. But what community allows is to create subgroups based on their zero party data. So, um, and around that authenticity is like, you're not just a music musician. You might enjoy, um, skateboarding or like are huge into uh, local beers or whatever it is. And every single person has a bunch of different interests. So you could create subgroups based on keywords or emojis automatically. So if anyone says any of these words, we can add them automatically to the subgroup. So then you could go to that local brewery or maybe that brand and say, hey, I have 5,000 people that I know for a fact are in New York over the age of 21 that said that they love to hear about new local beers. Um, I have this audience ready, willing, and able. Is there any brand partnership that we can do here? Or um, are you willing to pay for my subscription of community to be able to send this text message? So there's a lot of different things that you could do with that. Um, that's, that's, that's a really great question. Yeah, so that is, that is available to you on community, yeah. Terrific, thank you. You will come off is so forward thinking if you approach that brewery or whatever and are like, I have X amount of subscribers on my text list, you know, because I actually, I, I talk about brands and endorsements a little bit on this podcast, but um, what I really try to talk about is, um, you know, everything that's available to you guys, right? And so I, I've gotten pitched by branding experts and I'm like, well, that's not always available to everyone on, on one hand. Um, but on the other, it's like to land those um, those partnerships, like you not only do you need to build a following, but you need to have strong engagement on social. But a savvy brand is going to ask, like, what is your email list? And I've almost never heard them ask, what is or what is your email list? You know, number, what are your numbers like? I've never had a brand ask, what are your text numbers like? So like you're literally 
you're going to blow the minds of like smart companies and you're going to open the minds, not that a brewery is not smart, but like of a, a local company, it's like, well, yeah, duh, of course we want to, you know, tax people directly. So um, yeah. I, that is such a great question. It's, it's so forward thinking. Um, and yeah, so it, it's just, it just shows the power of exactly, exactly what we're talking about. And what I will say about brands and endorsements is it's not always, you know, Red Bull or, or these mm-hmm. massive brands, right? Like I totally encourage artists to, to work with, uh, local brands or even nonprofits, right? Like it could be a promotional trade, things like that. Yeah. So great question. Yeah. It also could be a negotiation, uh, thing. Yes. Like, let's say like you, you closed this brewery to play at, right? And then you text your community being like, hey, like who would be interested in coming to this and like whatever, blah, blah, blah. And you say, hey, I have this text list that's interested in beer. Like, can I get a percentage, an increased percentage of the profits if they say some type of promo code or whatever at the door, et cetera. Um, So you can kind of use it to your advantage of knowing after you've already closed some type of contract with them to get more from that um, brand. I love it. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Last one. I was going to ask if you wanted to ask a question. Yeah, <laughs> I'll ask one. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. My name is Yancy, and I guess with your experience of working with artists closely, what's a, mis- a common mistake that you see artists make in any stage of their career, you know, early, later on? Yeah. Um, it definitely, this one is interesting because it depends on, I think the artists and the genre of music a little bit and like, but I'm going to say in the general sense, and this might not be the rule for every single artist, which is kind of what I mentioned at the beginning, which is other SMS marketing are just one way blasts, Mm -hmm. right? They're just saying, buy this, buy this, stream this, blah, blah, blah. So it's just basically, if you're a fan, um, you're not really getting anything out of the relationship. You're only... Uh, that artist is only taking from you. So the artist needs, it's a give and a take, right? So I think the thing that I see people do wrong, um, especially on like SMS, is that they, they, they utilize it as a notification platform when it could be so much more. It could be this, this com- communication um, line with their fans and understanding what they need and what they want. So I would say where sometimes I see of all sizes, it's like, it's so focused on what that artist needs to accomplish, whether that be a certain um, amount of revenue stream, uh, sorry, uh, streams um, or revenue for their merch or whatever, that they kind of forget about the fact that they need to give something to their audience as well in order to continue that relationship. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Any other questions? Any, anything else you want to add or close with? No. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope that this was helpful. And yeah, this is great. I see a lot of head nodding. Yeah. No, you were amazing. Awesome. Yeah, let's give it up for Erica. Thank you. Awesome. Um, well, that's a wrap for episode two of season three of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Join us on Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern in real life here at Tower Records Tower Labs in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or via live stream on our YouTube as we discuss how to get your business affairs together with co-signed CEO Jessica Sobraj. So in that episode, we're going to be talking about how to pay producers, engineers, session players, as well as how to handle songwriting splits, remixes, 
compensation for arrangers, how to release a cover song, plus putting together an agreement for your band or group. Massive thanks to podcast manager Michael Zimmerlich, engineer Nathan Kane, upcoming episode five guest Matthew Wong for composing this this show's music, Danny, David, and Jake at Tower Records. Today's guest, Erica uh, Fagundes, Banzoogle, the Ally Coalition, Liquid Death, Hal Leonard, and of course, the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment's New York Music Month for making this all happen. We will see you on Monday.